0: going to talk about a movie, I think, that just really has done well. And what I mean by that, I mean has really aged well. And this movie literally came out 40 years ago. And it literally scared the shit out of everybody in America. And this movie, in particularly, is the sole reason why a lot of people don't like clowns. Scary fucking clowns. So, what am I talking about? I am talking about the 1982 movie Poltergeist. Now, this movie was directed by Toby Hooper and produced by Steven Spielberg. So, we're talking, Spielberg was just making them left and right. Indiana Jones. Other types of really good movies I can't think of right now. But they set this movie to some degree. And it's interesting because when I read through some of the things that happened, I can see them how they kind of plugged it in into the movie. But for the movie Poltergeist, it was actually based on true events. So let's talk about the true events because. In addition to this being based on true events, there's actually a theory that the movie is cursed. And it's not just one movie, believe it or not. There's actually a series of three movies. So but for our purposes, uh, we're mostly going to focus on the, the movie that started it all, the 1982 movie Poltergeist. So this all, the story... The family that has the real poltergeist actually lives in Seaford, Long Island, New York. And we are talking in 1958. They are a family of four. They are a Catholic family. And they're literally living their best 1950s American life. The dad, his name is James Herman. He works for Air France in New York City, so he commutes, he's 43. The mom, her name is Lucille, she is a registered nurse. She is 38, and they have two children. Lucille, the daughter, who is 13, and James, the son, who is 12. And henceforth, we will, we will refer to him as Jimmy. Now, the house was actually built in 1953, So when all this goes down in 1958, it's five years later, and the Herman family is the original owner, and they have lived in this house for the last five years. And the house I'm referring to is located at 1648 Redwood Path, again, Seaford, Long Island. And we're talking a standard, typical American house. Three-bedroom, one-bath, a basement, dining room, kitchen, I I mean, minus the fact that nowadays American homes tend to have two bathrooms and no basement. This is a pretty typical American house. But everything in their lives changes on February 3rd, about 3.30 in 1958. The mom had just gotten home from work. Lucy Jr. and Jimmy had just gotten home from school. And they're literally going about their afternoon when all of a sudden they hear a series of popping sounds coming from various spots around the house. And, I mean, this is just some rando scenario. So they go to see what the hell just happened. And they find that several unkept bottles of various types of liquids have been popped open and now on their side and is spilling liquid. The thing is, is that all of these bottles are actually in different rooms. And these are the kind of bottles you actually have to unscrew. So you can't just flip it with your thumb to pop open. You actually have to unscrew them. So we're talking a bottle of bleach in the basement utility room, a bottle of liquid starch in the kitchen, bottles of shampoo and medicine in the bathroom and a bottle of holy water holy water <laughs> or holy water <laughs> holy water <laughs> holy water that's opened in the master bedroom and was lying on its side and again the water spilling out. So this happens simultaneously and it's like this is odd. So, Lucille, the mom, does exactly what every American mom would have done back then. She calls her husband and tells him about it. And he does exactly what every American dad would have done. Be like, is anybody hurt? Then I'm not going to worry about it. Because the answer is no. So, and he's like, this is pretty nonchalant. I'm not going to stress over it. But chances are, this is probably some teenagers pulling a prank. And he basically tells his wife, don't worry about it. And, you know, we're just not going to talk about it. Now, I got to tell you, the thought of him thinking that some teenagers was pulling a prank on his family just really leaves me baffled. And I'll tell you why. So you're telling me that a bunch of random teenagers was in your house, simultaneously set their watches to the same time, managed to make these popping noises with all of these bottles in various parts of your house and your family didn't see them? Does this make sense to anybody else? No. No. So for the next few days, nothing. It's normal. Life goes on. Then on Thursday, the popping happens again. And this time, the kids are home from school. And, again, it's another series of various bottles that get popped open. And this time we're talking nail polish. We're talking rubbing alcohol. We're talking bleach, detergent, s- starch. And, again, the holy water, the holy water, that was located on Mrs. Herman's dresser. And this happens again the next night on Friday evening. and. At this time, James is convinced, the dad, he's convinced this is all somehow the works of his son. You know how we have these scientific, science kits that we give our kids that somehow he's got some sort of scientific kit that Jimmy has managed to rig all of these different bottles, hide the the triggering mechanisms for all these different bottles in all the different spots of the house. And, I mean, to him, this is the only thing that could be making this possible. So he decides he's going to just, like, sneak attack, catch Jimmy in the act. He is going to solve this mystery, and he believes that Jimmy is the culprit. Well, on Sunday, February 9th, Once again, several caps pop open, starch, turpentine, holy water, and just in addition to other ones that managed to explode. And James is pissed. He rushes to confront Jimmy, who's literally standing in the bathroom brushing his teeth. And as James is yelling and berating Jimmy and blaming him for all this scenario, As Jimmy is brushing his teeth and dad standing in the doorway, a bottle of shampoo moves literally from the countertop onto the floor whilst a bottle of medicine, a separate bottle, scoots across the counter and falls into the sink as they're standing there. And so now James can see that these things are moving on their own accord. So he does what any American would have done in the 1950s because, holy shit, I don't have a reasonable explanation for this. My son is not doing it. He calls the police. Now, this is a time when Americans could call and they would actually speak to a police officer. Nowadays, you have to talk to a dispatcher if you're that lucky if you're not put on hold during a 911 call, don't get me started on that. Anyways, he gets directed to Lieutenant E Richardson, and he literally has to convince this lieutenant that he is vi- dead serious, that he's you know he's not drunk, and the lieutenant is kind of like, I don't know about this. I don't know about this. But he kind of pokes around and finds out that James Herman has a good reputation in the community and that James Herman is a captain, uh, as a reserve captain with the police department. So he decides, okay, I'm going to send out an officer. So Officer James Hughes shows up. And again, this is the 1950s. This, This shit does not happen. So he's not really convinced, but he has to fill the call. And whilst he is there, pop, 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 goes some more puddles. And as he can tell that people aren't in the room where these incidents are happening, and he can hear them, he's like, oh, shits, this is real. And he even gets, like, so in the bathroom, when he goes to check on the ones in the bathroom, the lids from the bottles in the bathroom actually shoot across and hit him. So now he's convinced because he's dodging bottle caps flying on their own in the bathroom. So convinced that this shit is real, he writes up his report, and the police assign Detective Tazi to the case. On February 11th, Detective Tazi arrives, and once again, pop, 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 in the daughter's room, a perfume autonomizer is overturned and spills the perfume and nobody's in there and I I mean at this point in time kind of seeing where things are going he's seeing that no one's in the room this isn't plausible and even after this while he's there he nearly gets hit by a floating globe and phonographer player that moved And if that wasn't enough, on top of the exploding bottles, a bookshelf even flips over. And, again, it's not plausible that the Herman family is actually doing this. I mean, he's going over, he's looking at it, looking to see if anything's rigging it. And he's just like, this shit might (laughs) – something's happening. It's not the people's. It's not the people's. And, once again, the repeating issue with the holy water – in the bedroom, keeps popping open, spilling out. And then there was even one instance where Herman himself, Mr. Herman, goes to pick up the bottle, and he realizes the bottle is, like, really warm. And it, that's not normal. The, the room is at normal temperature. So he, they're like, hmm, th- well, this, this, is not, this is not good. Soon enough, this whole scenario gets a name. The pauper poltergeist. So, the police are basically confirming something's going on. Word is starting to get out that shit's going on in this house. And, and, and I mean, you have to remember, too, this is unheard of. This is not something that's normal, especially in the 1950s. They're trying to reach out and solve whatever is causing this issue. So, They even have a cousin, uh, Marie Mirtha, come and stay on February 15th. And while watching TV, a ceramic doll levitates in the room. It floats through the air and then collapses onto the floor. And when they go to go get the doll, surprisingly, the doll is not broken. Now, about this time, the Hermans, being Catholic... And the police kind of going, I don't really know. They all decide to call on their faith and reach out to St. William the Abbott Church. On February 17th, a father by the name of William McLeod comes to the house to perform a blessing. The family watches on as he anoints the house with holy water. You know, going, you know, to room to room, blessing the house, hoping that. Whatever is causing this will simply go away. And in the meantime, Detective Tozy, who's like, <laughs> there has to be a reasonable s- explanation for all this. He's looking at downdrafts from the chimney. He's looking at earthquakes. He's looking at faulty piping, sonic booms, because one of the things that was happening or in r- reality to them, they were very close to a Air Force so he was thinking, you know, maybe the airplanes was causing some sort of sonic boom and shifting the furniture or causing some sort of frequency that would cause the bottles to pop. There was even a theory of an angry Indian chief who was, whose spirit was at unrest. Does that sound familiar? People were, I mean, because by this time, people are, are actually aware of what's going on. And there's the theory of, the, you know, these are bad people. They've committed some sort of sin and God is punishing them. The idea of magnetic fields or underground water waves or radio waves. And Detective Tozy does his best. He's, he gets the fire department in. He gets a housing inspector in. He gets the city in. He gets everybody he can think of to come and do all these tests to see what the fuck is happening in this house. Now, after a couple of weeks of this, Mr. Herman James is like, "We need a, we need a minute." So they actually leave the house, and <laughs> no surprise, the second they're out of the house, nothing happens. And and of course, people remain in the house to see if anything happens, and nothing happens. Well, the second the Hermans return, the activity starts up again but it seemed like this time the activity just basically is like level up this shit that's what we're gonna do so as i said before people were hearing about what's going on the story has hit the airwaves it's on national television the Herman families, they're making appearances on TV shows. They're talking to radio casting shows. You know, they're, they're trying to figure out what the hell's going on, and they're basically looking for someone to please come and help them. So, and this is big, because nobody's had this problem prior. Well, at least not that we know of. So, Reporters and news anchors and paranormal enthusiasts and looky-loos and the onlookers and the neighbors and the crazies literally begin (laughs) camping out in their front yard. And they get, they're starting to get, like, uh, all these people have all these suggestions. It's an alien invasion. It's a Russian espionage. You have, you know, engaged with Satan. (laughs) But No, no. Even Life and Time magazine come in and do articles on the house. In fact, they invite other reporters as far away as London. And when that happened, a photographer by the name of John Gold from the London Evening News, he watches, he sees firsthand. His flash bulbs lift up from the table and fly through the air and strike a wall all in their own accord, obviously with no help from the the Hermans. And he's just like, holy shit, this is real. So by this time, the Hermans are fielding at least 70 calls a day. They're receiving 25 letters a day. And the detective is actually monitoring these letters because they're you know, he's holding out to the thought that maybe somebody is behind all this and they're going to send the Hermans a letter, you know, taking responsibility or acknowledging that this is all man-made doing and, you know, to kind of help figure out, basically, who's behind all this. Because in his mind, it's got to be a person. And in some of these letters, I mean, this is how sick – Again, the, her- the Hermans get shamed for some sort of sin. They get told that they have invited these tricks of Satan in their house. In the meantime, though, the activity, the paranormal activity in the house is just getting crazy. At one point, the detective and Jimmy are actually walking down the stairs to the basement. And a bronze statue of a horse weighing nearly 100 pounds flies across the basement and hits the detective in the legs. And, I mean, he's there. He could see it. He knows Jimmy and his scientist kit isn't doing it. In another instance, a porcelain figure launched itself from the table and smashed itself against the desk. The figurine, I mean, literally flew like 12 feet. It left a dent in the wood and this actually gets recorded, like a camera catches it, and this scene actually gets broadcasted to, uh, on television to audiences all over the New York metropolitan area. Glass sugar bowls are being thrown. Now, it, it's like, <laughs> it, with the exception of the one instance where the detective gets hit, it's getting uh, Unreal. On February 27th, Tazi literally was doing his standard observation when he hears this loud crash coming from Jimmy's room. I mean, he jumps up. He's startled. He hurries over, and he finds a large bookcase had toppled over. And the very next night on the 25th, while Jimmy was doing his homework in the room, his recorder lifted up, flew 25 feet across the room, In another instance, a small statue of the Virgin Mary flew more than 12 feet and struck a mirror frame in the master bedroom. And again, the bookcase filled with encyclopedias gets knocked over. A heavy glass centerpiece sitting on the dining room table flies up and hits a cupboard, chipping away a piece of the molding before crashing onto the floor. And if that's not enough, Popper decides he wants to start communicating by knocking on the walls. So, I mean, this is unreal. So at this point, again, this is national news. Everybody's hearing about this. A Dr. Ryan, a man with Duke University, actually reaches out to the Hermans and says, hey, can we please come do some research to see if we can help? And on February 26th, Dr. Ryan's assistant, Dr. Gainthier Pratt, arrives. Now, many people believe this is a poltergeist activity. This is poltergeist. And to be clear what a poltergeist is, which is German, it means a ghost, uh, a nosy spirit, a busybody. And the thing is, is that Pratt actually believes that someone in the house is unknowingly and subconsciously causing this strange phenomenon to occur. So Pratt and another colleague from North Carolina, a William G. Roll, comes to the Herman's house, and together they start conducting interviews of the family members. And immediately they rule out the family, potentially perpetrating Vic's hoax. And once they kind of roll up, things get real quiet for a couple days because now all of a sudden, you know, people they may not like or appreciate are in the house. But on March 2nd, Popper returns, and the whole family's there. A dish vaults from the kitchen cabinet and shatters on the floor. A night table gets slipped over in Jimmy's room, and then nothing. Two days later, a bowl of flowers slide down the dining room table and jump off into the air. Another bookcase gets overturned in the cellar. Now, about this time, Dr. Ryan himself shows up. He's convinced that this is some sort of either poltergeist activity or telekinetic event or psychokinesis. And he's convinced that it's probably the presence of the two hormonal teenagers that somehow is creating, like, for instance, the telekinetic events and or the psychokinesis activity. Because to them their theory is that an adolescent child, and usually a girl, is being, you know, is the source of the paranormal activity. They believe that this person, they're not aware that they are capable of of having, f- of creating the psychokinesis events during their puberty. But in this case, you know, They're actually not looking at Lucille, but they're actually looking at Jimmy. And part of the reason why they're looking at Jimmy as potentially the source is because he has witnessed most of the activity when it's happened, when this all started. Now... Again, the poltergeist comes and goes, comes and goes. You know, you don't know what to expect, when to expect. It is a common thing with poltergeist cases. But on March 10th, the scientists, again, hear the popping of bottles. They rush down to the basement, and they discover a single bleach bottle with no lid, because the lid is missing, on its side, and that's it. That is the last of the popper activity. Popper's gone. Now, between February 3rd, when this all started, the afternoon of February 3rd, about 3.30, till March 10th, the evening of March 10th, 67 occurrences happened within the home. Now, when I read through all of this, the telekinesis, usually a young girl at the height of her puberty. I got to tell you guys, you know who I thought of? I thought of Carrie, Stephen King's Carrie. Now, Stephen King was born September twenty first, 1947. In 58, he was 11. Carrie came out in 74. But I just, and in an interview he gave, and, and, and he, he had said, part of Carrie was created because he was hooked on the idea of telekinesis, which is exactly what the doctors were promoting as the cause of all this in The Popper Poltergeist. But either way, you know, this is just a side note because I'm familiar with Carrie. Carrie with Sissy Spacek is a great movie. You know, the beginning is a little rough to get through, but other than that, and the mom's a little crazy, but seriously, this was what I really thought. And when I read that, he was kind of really hooked on the idea of telekinesis. There's a small part of me that secretly thinks that King heard or remembered. Because, I mean, he's in northern England. The, the, New York is right there. The small part of me thinking, Huh, maybe he heard about this. And this sort of kind of grew in his mind. I don't know. But what does happen is the movie Poltergeist. And the movie Poltergeist gets released on June 4th, 1982. And this movie is a massive hit. Huge. It stars Jo Beth Williams, who I absolutely loved in this movie. I also loved, I hope she's listening, I I absolutely (laughs) loved you in American Dreamer. That is one of my favorite movies. I watch it all the time. She's also in Stir Crazy with Richard Pryor and Gene, Hack- Gene Hackman, Gene Wilder. The dad in the movie is Craig T. Nelson, who was also in Stir Crazy, but I remember him fondly from the TV sitcom Coach. And our, our current viewers might recognize him from a show called Young Sheldon. They had, so Joe Beth is the mom, Craig T. Nelson is the dad. They have a 16 year old daughter named Dana. Played by Dominique Dunn. They have a young son named Robbie. He's about seven or eight. He's played by Oliver Robbins. And then they have a young little girl. Just the brightest eyes and the blondest hair. Carol Ann. Played by Heather O'Rourke. And this family is just an average American family. This is a two-story house. You've got two, three kids. you got a nice mom. you got a nice dad. Mom's a homemaker, dad's the breadwinner, and, I mean, they have everything. They have the American dream. And this family has has been living in this house, and then shit starts going crazy. And it's interesting, the activity, I don't know if they did this on purpose, or this is just a pure coincidence, but the activity seemed to coincide with the beginning of a pool being put into the backyard. Now, as I said prior, some people believed that the movie Poltergeist and the cast and crew were cursed, and here's why. As I mentioned before, this movie came out on June 4th, 1982. As this movie's just hitting the airwaves and is this massive success, In October of 1982, Dominique Dunn, who is their daughter Dana, had just broken up with her boyfriend, who was a sous chef, a gentleman by the name of John Sweeney. Sweeney unexpectedly showed up at Dominique's house on the evening of October 30th in West Hollywood. He wanted to work things out. He wanted to get back together. He wanted to move back in. But Dominique was like, no, it's over. Sweeney begins choking her, and when the police arrive, Sweeney is quoted saying, I've killed my girlfriend, I've killed my girlfriend. And despite the fact that she was viciously attacked and was choked, Dominique actually was still alive. She gets taken to the cedars Cyanide Medical Center, but she slips into a coma, and she never regains consciousness. She gets taken off of life support on November 4th, 1982. So that's our our first Poltergeist victim. Let's talk about Carol Ann, or in real life, Heather Ork. And I gotta tell you, Heather was just as cute, button, cute as a button, little six year old, when Poltergeist hit the theaters. And unfortunately, five years later, she gets misdiagnosed with Crohn's disease in 1987. And because of this, in January of 1988. She becomes severely ill, and her health is declining immediately. On February 1st, again, 1988, she gets taken to the hospital, and they realize that she actually does not have Crohn's disease. She's been misdiagnosed. She actually has congenital stenosis, and that the congenital stenosis has created an acute bowel obstruction. So they go in to operate her, but the blockage ruptures, and the toxins get released into her body and basically creates a scenario where she dies from septic shock, and she's gone. This this poor thing is gone. Now, strangely enough, 17 years later, another actor from the original movie dies in an unpleasant and horrifying way. So in the movie, like I said, they're having this pool come be put in, and the actor is one of the construction people and i actually couldn't figure out which one but i do know it's not the guy eating the chili the the mom jo beth williams diana comes across this guy eating the chili and he's like yo your chili's pretty good there mrs freeling she's like okay um i don't remember his name get out but an actor by the name of lou perryman who in the movie was called pugsley was gruesomely murdered in his home by Seth Christopher Tatum, who was an ex-con with a history of mental health problems. On April 1st, 2009, Tatum was on the run after a violent altercation with her his mom's ex-boyfriend, and he just, per chance, no... No, no no, pre-planning, just happened to come across purely by accident Perryman's house, and he killed him. And the reason why he killed him was because he was trying to steal Perryman's car. So it turned out that this gentleman, Christopher Seth, Seth Christopher, had stopped taking his bipolar disorder medication, and he was now sent to prison for the rest of his life. Now, a couple other actors that come up in the sequels, a gentleman by the name of Julian Beck. He dies from cancer, stomach cancer later on in life. And another gentleman, a Will a Will Sampson who played Taylor, the Native American shaman again in the sequels. He dies after undergoing a heart lung transplant, but In the 80s, a heart and lung transplant, you had a very slim chance of surviving anyways. So a lot of deaths surrounding this movie. A lot of weird deaths at that. You know, unfortunately, Dunn was a victim of domestic violence. Heather was a victim of of a misdiagnosis. And even the construction guy who never even met Seth Christopher Pryor was murdered just so randomly. Now, again, <laughs> if you look this up, I mean, it's crazy to think about how all this happened on the set, or not necessarily the set, to the cast of one movie. But I stand by the notion that this movie, 40 years later, is still pretty good. In fact, the I feel that the special effects that were used are still impressive today. And we have CGI. We just saw a very young Princess Leia. In Rogue One, which I thought was another great movie in the Star Wars trilogy. Or in the Star Wars saga, not trilogy. <laughs> but either way, so if you get a chance, check it out. See what the <laughs> see why we fucking hate clowns now. Because it's a real thing, guys. It's a real thing. Especially my foreign listeners. G- you know, give it a try. See what the the hoopla is all about. All right, so that's what I have for you tonight. On to business. Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. We have a Facebook page. If you are curious or interested and would like to check it out, send us a request. But in the meantime, if you have a topic or a serial killer that you would like us to cover, send us a request at where the dark corners are at gmail.com. So until next time, please remember, only the few can find the beauty in the darkness. Which is why we hope to meet you where the dark corners are.